0: Some things uh, bear repeating. I asked you earlier in this service, let the church say amen. Let's do it again. Amen. 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 We continue our uh, exposition of the Sermon on the Mount, and we're in that place um, where Jesus is teaching us how to pray. Uh, We're at Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, if you will turn your uh, Bibles, leaves, to that place. Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. Father, use these words of your sons to minister to our hearts at this hour. Accomplish your holy will in every life in this place. Deepen our resolve to trust you. And to walk in your ways. And we thank you for the result that will occur in answer to our prayers. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. 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 Verse 13, it says this, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I'm using as a subject for uh, the verse under consideration this morning divine intervention. You are no match for the power and force of sin and evil. They are stronger than you are. Consequently, you need help. You need help beyond yourself. You need help that's not earthly help. You need divine help. In fact, you need supernatural help. And that is exactly what Jesus is teaching us here. We must depend solely on God our Father. In our text, Jesus uses the word and. You can see it there in the beginning of verse 13 a second time in the personal petition portion of this prayer. He uses the word and here a second time as he did previously in the previous petition to underscore that the Father's meeting of our spiritual need is just as important as his supplying us of our material need. In telling us to ask God to meet these needs, these all of them, material and spiritual Jesus wants us to reflect on the reality that we must depend on our father for everything in the final petition here we ask God the father to do two things for us and the first of those is found in the heading uh, in this division of this verse and I call it our protector And do not lead us into temptation. The first part of the verse has been baffling to Christians. It's puzzling. What? What do you mean? God would lead us into temptation and we must ask him not to do that? That contradicts all that we know about God. It contradicts his known character. He is holy. Yet, Jesus says, and do not lead us into temptation. We know that God cannot sin. We know he is perfect, he is holy. He is not like us. He is not susceptible to evil. We know that. But Jesus says, and do not lead us into temptation. James 1 verse 13 is explicit regarding the reality that God cannot sin. Or that he will not lead people into temptation. It says there in that text, let no one say when he is tempted. I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. Case closed. (laughs) God can't be tempted. Evil doesn't appeal to him. He in fact hates evil. He cannot approve of evil. He cannot sin. He will not sin. And, but Jesus says, and do not lead us into temptation. Why then would Jesus teach us to petition God not to do something he will not do? The answer lies in the word translated temptation. The Greek, the rasmos, simply means to test. It means to Test. It's translated temptation there, and it simply means to test. The word is morally neutral. It has no inherent moral connotation. The test is either for good or for evil, depending on who's doing the testing. Let me give you an example of this reality. In the temptation of our Lord Jesus by the devil, in Matthew 4, 1 and following, It says that the spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. But you need to understand that God and the devil had different purposes in mind. The devil sought to induce Jesus to sin and therefore disqualify him for his redemptive mission. I I think I don't need to add this, but I will. The devil failed. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, the outcome was already determined. God, on the other hand, used the temptation that the devil brought to our Lord Jesus there in the wilderness to test Jesus. Now, God wasn't seeking to learn anything about Jesus. He knew everything there was to know about him. Or to see what he would do in response to the devil's solicitations to sin. No, that wasn't God's purpose. God's purpose was to use the temptation to prove Jesus' absolute holiness and utter worthiness to fulfill the mission of salvation. It demonstrated that he was perfectly qualified, he was perfectly suited to be our sin bearer. He was the one who alone was qualified to take our sin, pay them fully, and be raised by God from the dead, signifying he had paid our sin. That that this was the point, to prove who Jesus is. And do not lead us into temptation. We'll have tests. We'll have trials. You do know that, don't you? They come to us as believers. They come in different forms. There's sickness. That can be a trial. There are financial reverses and successes. (laughs) Trial. Relationship troubles. Troubles in your home. Troubles on your job. Everywhere you go in this world there is some kind of trouble. That's because we live in a fallen evil world and those things are inescapable. God either sends them for the believer or permits them to enter our life. John chapter uh, James, excuse me, chapter 1 verses 2 and 3 teaches us the truth about perasmos, trials or t- temptations. Plural is used there in James chapter 1. The trials have a constructive purpose in our life. They're designed by God to benefit us spiritually. That's why he says in James, count it all joy. Because God is up to something good in your life. You shouldn't run around with your head hung down, though that's our tendency. God says, no, 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 you need to count it all joy. Because I have in mind something good for you, something that will benefit you spiritually. It is constructive. Trials are good for us, they prove the genuineness of our salvation. When you endure the trials, it demonstrates yes, your faith is real. Your faith remains intact through the trial. Trials increase the strength of our faith. You don't get stronger unless you exercise, if you will, your faith in trials. Trials also expose what is in us and how far we have to go spiritually. See, you think you've gotten here and the trial will show that you are right here and you have a ways to go in your spiritual life and growth. Peter had to learn this lesson. Remember that? Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32. He learned this about himself because he wrongly believed that he was stronger than he was. He told Jesus. Remember he famously said, "Oh, I'll go die with you." It was quite tense. Jesus was being betrayed, and the night the next day he'd be crucified, and, and Peter said, oh, "No, no, no, don't worry about it, Lord. I'm right here. I'll die with you if necessary." Jesus said, No, no, Peter. You're gonna deny me. No, oh uh, no, Lord. You can count on me. Peter wasn't as strong as he thought he was. Jesus allowed him and the other disciples, in fact, to be sifted like wheat by Satan. They were shaken. Their faith was shaken. But because their faith was genuine, it remained. Peter discovered that he had greatly overestimated himself spiritually. He found out that he was really weaker than he thought he was. When he turned again, restored by Jesus, by divine grace, he could strengthen the brethren, which he did in the epistles. So in effect, it helped Peter. And he helped others as well. We must not rely on ourselves... But on our God during tests, trials, and temptations. J.I. Packer, great late theologian, said this quote Life is a spiritual minefield. Amid such dangers we dare not trust ourselves. Life is <laughs> a spiritual minefield. You know, a lot of times you don't know what trial or temptation's coming. It'll catch you off guard. We need the Lord to help us to navigate the miles fi- mind fill of this world. The request in the a portion of this verse is not that our Father who is in heaven wouldn't bring us into temptation to sin; rather, it is a request that He bring when He brings a trial or a test that it would not overwhelm us and lead us into sin that's why he's saying and says and do not lead us into temptation we pray this way as Jesus teaches us to because of our we recognize our weakness we recognize our immaturity and if God didn't control it then the test or the trial the temptation could be over could overwhelm us and we couldn't bear it so we're mindful Do we need to pray? So we know our weakness. Says Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes. The disciple is conscious. Of his weakness. And does not unnecessarily expose himself. To temptation in order to test the strength of his faith. Like Peter did. You don't want to do that. Bonhoeffer continues. Christians ask God not to put their puny faith. To the test. But to preserve them in the hour of. Of trial. Indeed, we must do that. Let me add you want to be mindful as you live your life to be obedient as well as prayerful. You ask God and do not lead us into temptation, but you also must be mindful not to go where the temptations are. You know, you go to a store and they've done some mopping and they put up a sign that says, It's wet. They're telling you don't walk where it's slippery. And that's how you have to behave when you deal with sin in this world. It comes from us from all kinds of ways, all kinds of temptation. You you must not walk where it is slippery. Now this prayer is the basis of this prayer here is the promise of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God will not put anything on us more than we are able to endure. But we also must pray. This is God's providence. This is how he works this out. The petition recognizes the providence of God in our life. He meticulously arranges the affairs of our life, even the trials, temptations. And he is consummately able to keep us from disastrous temptations by keeping them from overwhelming us. God is able to do that. And He is working your life and my life as children of God, as we face life, as we pray, as we trust Him. He is working to arrange things so though we will not come into some trial, some temptation that will blow us out of the water as it were. We need His providential protection. We understand our weakness and we understand our sinfulness. Not only is it external to us, temptation that comes, but we have an internal weakness. In James chapter 1, the Bible is quite clear. It says in James chapter 1, verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. You see, there's an internal reality of our sinfulness. Our lust is there. And if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves in sin. The believer recognizes his weakness. And so he needs to pray. You need to pray. Asking God to regulate the affairs of life so that you will not sin against him. Any believer who does not pray this petition leaves himself or herself open to spiritual failure. If you neglect what Jesus teaches us to pray here in verse 13, the A portion, you are saying, okay, I can handle it, God. And when you say, okay, I can handle it, God, you just set yourself up for a big defeat. The humble believer is self-distrusting. Because he understands the propensity that he has, uh, the remaining tendencies that he possesses to sin and the weaknesses in him. They understand that. He understands that. The great apostle Paul knew this. It was a fact of his life, like it is for all of us. He understood this. In Romans chapter 7, verse 18 the apostle says this for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh for the willing is present in me but the doing of the good is not this is a saved man he says there's nothing good in my flesh That complex of sin that remains that expresses itself in the body he says it's not in me and I know this because every time I want to do the good the good is keeping the law of God perfectly I fail I can't pull it off realism and you and I have to face that in our own life like the apostle Paul uh, did and said listen if God doesn't help me I cannot do this and that's why Jesus teaches us to enlist, uh, enlist God by prayer to be our protector for we need him now There's another element in this prayer. Um, The second is really one petition, but two elements. And we see it here in verse 13 of Matthew 6. It says, but deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. Uh, Since believers cannot completely escape temptation, you can't in this life. Jesus taught them to pray not only for protection from temptation, but also protection in temptation. Deliver us from evil, from out of it. We need that blessing. The word deliver implies the helplessness of the disciple. Apart from divine intervention, we are utterly helpless the word deliver further as i can explain this to you to help you to see it hopefully a little better the word deliver here is the same greek word we rendered rescue in colossians 1 13 in colossians 1 13 it regards our rescue our deliverance from the domain of darkness that is our rescue from our lost estate in the clutches and power of satan we will rescue by god the father in salvation We were helpless to deliver ourselves from Satan's realm, Satan's kingdom. And we are, now that we belong to Christ, we are helpless to deliver ourselves from the power of temptation. So we need to ask him, God, deliver us from evil. I'm calling on you to deliver me from evil. And that's what beatitude people do. They want to be delivered from temptations, clutches. They desire to be obedient to Christ. You know, when you cry out to God, when you cry out to the Lord, say, Father, deliver me from this temptation, it indicates that you have a heart that desires holiness. You want to have a holy life. You want to be godly in your life. It indicates that you desire hunger and hunger and thirst that's a reality of the true Christian Amen. Jesus says in Matthew 5 6 blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied we will be satisfied ultimately in heaven but in this life there is satisfaction but one of the things our desire is Lord I want to in practical terms I want to live a holy life it's another word for sanctification when there's justification, when you're a beatitude person, you've been made or declared righteous by God, there is a desire for holy living. You want to be Christ-like. That's a telltale sign that you belong to Jesus. Cuz you now you desire holy life, oh, holy living. You want to be like Christ. so Jesus teaches us to pray this way deliver us from evil that word evil there you see one word in the original language it's tu panaru tu panaru the evil one the evil one therefore it can refer to the devil that's what we believe it is the devil is referred to as the evil one and so he's saying deliver us from him this is, scholars debate it whether it's the evil one, though the text suggests it are. They simply say it's evil, whatever. If it's from the, the devil or the evil system, it doesn't matter. We want to be delivered, right? <laughs> it doesn't matter to me. Just deliver me, Lord. <laughs> I, I don't care it's, where it's coming from. They can debate it all they want to. All I'm asking is just deliver me, please. And you remember the high priestly prayer of Jesus, the real Lord's prayer in John seventeen fifty. He said, Keep them from the evil one. That was his intercession for his men. Because I'm going to tell you what the devil would like to do if he could pull it off. His great desire to be destroy our salvation. He'd like to separate us from the love of God in Christ. But he can't do that because Jesus is interceding for us. And he'll continue. And it won't happen because the Father will answer that prayer. So that's what we do. We ask him to deliver us now oh, this, is, this is wonderful this, this prayer verses 9 through 13 the disciples prayer in this concise prayer from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ he gives us a model for how to pray and here we come down to the end here with divine intervention which we'll need until the day we go home and be with the Lord but I need to answer something here you may have in your Bible; I have in mine. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Now, let's grow up. <laughs> when I say that, you, you got to face some certainties, some realities here, and I'm going to lay this out for you. Those words I just read you the final portion of this prayer is true but they are not a part of the original words of Jesus they're not in the earliest manuscripts my Bible a new American standard version of the scripture brackets these words to indicate it is not a part of the prayer Jesus didn't utter them in Luke's version of the disciples prayer in Luke 11 it does not include these words in fact my copy my copy of the greek new testament you read down read in the greek language you read all of that you get right down to the end and these words are not there they haven't a, 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 a Apparatus that is at the bottom of the page that gives information about manuscripts and which ones and all of that sort of technical stuff. Um, that's where they deal with it. But these words aren't there. They're missing in the earliest and better manuscripts. The words probably came from First Chronicles chapter twenty-nine verses eleven and uh, through thirteen. There's an echo of them in these words, this doxology, but we can't be for sure. Now, where did these words come from? Why are they here? We believe that a doxology was added um, and used in the corporate worship of the early church. They would read this prayer uh, recite this prayer and then they would say for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever amen and you know what that's true that's okay these words are perfectly fitting because it is God's kingdom and his kingdom is by his power And to him alone belongs the glory. So if we want to say them, that's okay. Because you're not lying. All you're doing is affirming the truth of these words. You're just affirming the truth about who God is. And if we sing it, it's good to say those words. It's okay. They're moving and they're true. Because when it comes right down to it it is the Lord who is ruling it is the Lord's kingdom that's going to come it is the, na- the name of the Lord that will be glorified forever and ever so we can say for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory for how long forever. amen to that That's how we pray. Receive divine intervention. Let us bow together in prayer. Our Father and our God, we bless your name. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth that we have just seen and heard. We thank you for the fact that we, your children, When your family can call upon you during our trials, our temptations, all of those matters. And you will hear us and answer. Help us to be faithful. To do these things for your own glory, for our joy as well. We pray for any here this morning who is without Jesus Christ. We pray you open their eyes to believe on him as the only Savior and Lord. Respond by faith to him. For any person here this morning who's a child of God need a church home, we ask that you move them to become a part of this fellowship for your own glory and praise for their growth in Christ. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.